Hi Pranav, welcome to the Network Capital Podcast. Through this, we try and uh, do a deeper dive into the mental models of people's careers. So, could you tell us who you are and what you do? Hi Utkarsh, my name is Pranav Kothari. I work at Educational Initiatives. Our mission is to create a world where children are learning with understanding. The problem that we are trying to tackle is rote learning because that's the biggest elephant in the room. We do this by making high-quality assessments that check for conceptual understanding, whether a child has really understood a concept uh, or has simply memorized facts and procedures. Uh, we also make these assessments to measure student learning when it comes to impact evaluations of the work that NGOs do. Uh, we have MindSpark, which is a personalized adaptive learning software that is used in more than 300 government schools in eight states of India now. And uh, how did your interest in education come about? So I was a you know, MBA student at Harvard Business School and uh, on campus uh, there was a lot of inspiration that came from a variety of different social enterprise quarters. There were professors, uh, peers, uh, students who were in teaching or had worked in school systems before that I interacted with. We had case studies of various entrepreneurs in education. Um, and you know, while I was uh, sitting in the midst of all of this, uh, Professor Clay Christensen asked a question, which is, what is the purpose of your life? He has subsequently written a book on this. And you know, that question really haunted me uh, for the time I was there. I would spend an hour reflecting on that question every evening. Um, and as I did more of that reflection, I found that you know, I had the privilege of going to some of the best schools and colleges. I went to St. Xavier's Loyola, then studied at Georgia Tech, and finally at Harvard Business School. And it's not because I was very smart or intelligent only. You know, I had the right form of support. Someone gave the right advice, uh, someone you know, paid for it, uh, someone gave the emotional support for it. And in many ways, it didn't make sense to pay them back. They didn't really need it. So I thought the best use of my education would be to pay it forward, uh, to be the support system for others who have a great education. And during those two years, I explored uh, multiple things ranging from starting a preschool in South Bombay, becoming an MBA professor at colleges, and finally uh, decided that you know, the value of primary education in a child's life is sort of what would make the highest difference. And that's when I decided that I would actually spend um, a fair amount of the next uh, part of my career uh, being the support system uh, for those who don't have access to a great education. Uh, what were you doing pre-Harvard Business School? So uh, after finishing engineering, I joined the Boston Consulting Group as a management consultant. I got to travel the world. Um, I spent two months in South America, in Chile and Argentina. I spent another two months in Germany, spent a year and a half in the US working for a variety of consumer goods and industrial goods uh, in, in consulting. And then for two years, I was in uh, private equity. The first year was in New York and the second year in Mumbai. Uh, we looked at a variety of deals ranging from healthcare to aviation, um, and those were the four years that I worked before uh, doing an MBA. So your career really shifted, right? Most people uh, want different kind of uh, or seek different kind of goals post an MBA. Why did it happen? Like, did you go in thinking that education or something social would be where you'll end up? I actually went into business school wanting to become a hedge fund manager. And uh, you know, I, I even made fun of the social enterprise club in the first semester. Um, so it's something that I did not go in thinking about or not even having the exposure to doing. 
Uh, it's essentially time on campus. You know, I actually had the fortune of going to business school after working in consulting and private equity. Uh, during my undergrad, I'd also interned at General Electric and Capital One. So I had, you know, the luxury of having been there, done that. Uh, but, you know, I didn't feel that the work that I was doing was meaningfully improving uh, people's lives, at least not directly. There was a lot of intermediaries. Um, it was very hard to attribute it back. And during those two years, uh, through variety of different inspiration from cases to, you know, random coffee chats, uh, I decided that what I wanted to do was really be able to work in the trenches, you know, get my hands dirty and do something that directly, you know, felt like improving someone's life. And uh, who did you consult with while making this choice? You know, I got a lot of free advice uh, from classmates. Um, you know, I had offers to go back to BCG and private equity. If I did that, they would have paid for my entire tuition. Um, a lot of people told me that, why don't you, you know, uh, finish that off, like be financially stable before you do this. I actually thought the opposite. Uh, I thought that, you know, let me go and do this first. In case I fail, in case, you know, I'm on the streets and don't have enough food, I can always go back and pursue that path. Um, so I actually got no advice uh, from people to say, uh, I mean, it's easy to say, follow your dreams, follow your passion. But uh, I think when it comes to practical um, living and financials and paying off the loan, um, I don't think anyone out there, you know, could say that by working in Indian education and social development, you'd be able to do that. Um, I sort of did this, uh, and a lot of people would say it wasn't the right logical decision. Um, but, you know, I felt that I had enough of a safety net to be able to go back and do what they were saying. Right. Um, so... No, not much advice, uh, except, uh, you know, there were people who um, at least told me about this world and about these different things that one could do. Yeah. Um, why did you go to business school? So, you know, Hedge at fund some was, point, of course, one reason and getting into an HBS uh, would be helpful. But I'm sure there were other reasons. Utkash, what happens is, you know, you, you follow a template. Right? You do engineering, you do consulting, you do private equity. Everybody tells you that you have to do business school. Uh, in fact, you know, the companies that I worked for required me to go do an MBA and come back. Uh, I don't think there was a lot of active thought at that point. Um, so you're just following the template. You're following um, a blueprint that you know has existed, uh, is socially acceptable, is uh, something that sounds safe. Um, I don't think I, you know, spent too much time thinking uh, before applying. It just seemed like the natural progression. Uh, and uh, with the wisdom that you have today, uh, when did you graduate? 2011. So eight years out, do you, do you think that EMBA was precious, valuable to you? So a lot has changed uh, since I applied for an MBA in 2008, um, right? The two reasons that people used to go to an MBA are one is to gain knowledge and the second is to get a network. The access to knowledge is no longer confined to the MBA program. You can uh, get a lot of uh, online courses, uh, you know, that you can do and get access to that knowledge. Now, there is some merit in having that network, uh, but that is if you go to the top schools, right? So my advice if someone were to do an MBA is to go to the very top, uh, the top five, the top 10, 
um, wherever they think they can get in. It's actually not that useful to go to a second tier MBA college because the biggest cost is the two years that one would lose out where they could be working, where they could be contributing, where they could be advancing their career. So I would say if you get into a top five MBA college globally, uh, it might be worth it because the quality of the professors and your peers and the events on campus uh, would be you know, a significant notch above than the others. You spoke about the professor Clayton Christensen's words, you know, having a strong impact on you. Um, uh, absolutely. Tell us more about uh, today the work that you do. Do you apply some of the lessons that you picked up or do you draw upon your network actively uh, from business school? If yes, how? If not, uh, why not? So it's hard to make that one-on-one -on -one, uh, correlation, right? I'm sure that the 500 cases that I was exposed to at HBS, you know, the active decision-making that happened while I was in the classroom, uh, it's all of that you know, brick and cement uh, that is at the foundation of what I do. But if you were to tell me what did you learn and how are you using it, I think it's more subconscious. Of course. Um, it's also about what you take out of business school. Right. Uh, I've had friends who essentially, you know, didn't do as much work and coasted through business school uh, and it probably had a lesser impact on them. Uh, and I've had friends who, you know, took every opportunity, attended every event and read every case and came prepared to class. And it would definitely have a positive impact. So it's not just about what the MBA gives you. It's also what about you take from the MBA um, and to do this very thoughtfully. So in my second year, I didn't make a resume because I knew I wanted to go back and help improve education. I think what I used that time then is to go visit charter schools. Uh, I would spend morning to afternoon there. I would interview all the teachers, the founder, and took lots of notes. Um, I went to events. Uh, I went to you know, on-college activities and seminars that were designed to that. So I think you need to be articulate on what you want out of the MBA and then a lot of your time on campus would be much better utilized. Yeah. Uh, let's discuss uh, a little bit of your pre-MBA days and why, like, how did you decide to apply to HBS and how did you prepare? So, of course, you had like a very perfect-looking resume, Georgia Tech, PCG, the private equity fund. Um, it HBS seemed like the, 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 the natural next step. But are there some things that you did well, well in your application and your interview that you'd like to share with our audience? So first is, you know, I applied only to Harvard and Stanford. Now, this may seem elitist uh, to sound, but it's in line with what I said previously, that if you get into the very top, it's worth going. And if you don't, it's not worth going. So in my mind, I knew that if I didn't get into both of these, I would just continue working and apply the next year. Um, you know, for me, I think what worked well is um, having a unified uh, story. Um, so, you know, as to why I studied engineering, why I sort of worked in the Fortune 500 companies, the consulting and the private equity and what I wanted to do after HBS. So I think college applications look for that unifying storyline. Uh, if you're doing too many scattered things and in your application you write that after the MBA, I'm going to do yet another unlinked thing. I think that doesn't seem like a cohesive application. Um, so, you know, obviously I asked around other people who had gotten into business school, um, asked what worked for them, what didn't. 
Uh, I was fortunate to have a very high GPA, uh, but uh, above average GMAT score. And I think those two sort of uh, balanced each other. So what was your GPA and do you remember your GMAT? Yeah, so my GPA was uh, 3.9 out of 4, uh, which at Georgia Tech, I was uh, amongst the top 2% of all the engineering graduates uh, at that time. Uh, my GMAT score was a very low 690, which I think is uh, maybe about the 80th percentile. Right. And together it came together, plus your work experience added up. Uh, why did you decide to take up management consulting after doing so well in engineering? <coughs> so. I got an opportunity to spend my summers working uh, during my four-year undergrad. The first uh, internship was on the factory floor assembly line of General Electric in Louisville, Kentucky. I had to work with union employees who were 50 years old. Um, I was only 19 at that time. Uh, I got a really good hands-on experience on how a factory floor looks like. Uh, in my second internship, I was a corporate buyer, so we would buy millions of dollars worth of capital equipment uh, and I would be responsible for sourcing, negotiating, closing those deals. In my third internship at Capital One, uh, we actually used to mail out physical two billion pieces of mail in the US um, and so even like just process optimization. What happened during those four years of learning and three summers of internship is I realized I love the business side of things far more than the engineering side of things. Um, I, you know, this is also uh, 2004, uh, just a couple of years after September 11, 2001, and a lot of the U.S. companies had stopped accepting foreign applications because the whole H-1B visa would just take so much longer. Uh, BCG was amongst the few companies that were still uh, willing to accept uh, foreign nationals. Um, I had two other offers uh, from Capital One as well as from National Instruments. Um, and between those three offers, uh, I liked the BCG one most um, given what you know I had experienced during my internships. And uh, again, like private equity after consulting is something that uh, that is sort of in the template, but uh, was there any other reason why you chose private equity or did private equity choose you? So actually after finishing two years of BCG, uh, they expect you to go to business school uh, and come back. Uh, but I wasn't ready for business school then. Uh, I wasn't sure which business school, why business school, why now? Uh, one thing I knew for sure is I'd never taken an accounting class. And even at BCG, even in management consulting, I used to struggle with the finance and the accounting side of things. Uh, so instead of going to college to learn those, I thought that if I joined the venture capital or private equity, I would get to learn it on the job. Uh, and that also gave me two more years of working before I went to business school. In hindsight, I think it was a good decision. You know, all in all with my internships and this, I walked into business school after five years of working. And the first year, you know, a lot of the basic courses was a breeze because I, that's what I had done. And it also allowed me to close doors on what I didn't want to do. So I knew getting into business school, you know, multiple things that I wouldn't do. And that just helped me be more focused in business school. Uh, and so anyone out there who's thinking about an MBA, I would recommend that run as many experiments as you can, do as many internships, do as many jobs as you can before business school, so that when you get into business school, you are far more sharper about what you're looking for. Uh, and it's also a good reset button when you want to do a career change. 
Um, tell me how different was your day at BCG when you compare it to your, say, an average day at the private equity firm? So I think one big difference is client service versus uh, being on the buy side. Um, so in client service, I think you have deadlines that are on a weekly basis. Um, you are expected to make very highly polished slides um, that convey what you want to say effectively. There's a fair bit of travel uh, to the client side um, and normally cases run between two to six months. On the private equity side, um, it's more of evaluating deals that come in. Uh, the pyramid is inverted. Um, so, for example, at BCG, there would be about you know, four to five uh, associates and consultants reporting to one project manager, uh, you know, and then four to five project managers reporting to one partner. In the private equity shop that I was, uh, we had three partners, uh, two managers, and me as a single associate. So in some ways, I had five different bosses. Um, the work at private equity involves typically lesser travel, um, more sort of you know, looking at the financials of companies, um, and it sort of uh, has to think about what might be potential acquisitions, exits, multiples, comps, whereas the work in BCG would be more around uh, logic and um, you know, interviews uh, of a different kind. Um, so now, when you compare it to your day at EI uh, with what you just described, uh, what has changed, what has remained the same, or is it a completely a new ball game? I think what has remained the same is logical thinking, right? Problem solving. Uh, looking at the same problem with multiple diverse perspectives. Uh, I think those are things that you have to do in consulting, in private equity, in ed tech, in social development. I think what has changed for me the most is finding purpose uh, in the work I do. Uh, I work harder now in social development than I did at BCG in private equity, and that might sound crazy, but the one difference is that there I worked because it was in the atmosphere, because there was pressure from the manager, there were deadlines, it was external, extrinsic motivation to do that. I think the work I do now, there's a very high degree of intrinsic motivation. You know, I feel a lot more satisfaction in the work I do. I go to sleep sort of knowing that, you know, I'm proud of what I do. Um, this might sound self-serving, but, you know, it does provide the fuel for continuity. Um, before business school, the maximum I'd worked in any job was two years. You know, after business school in this space, I've stuck at it for the last eight years. Uh, so this just, was your first job and is your job today after? Yeah, I think I'm one of the rare few MBA uh, you know, grads in the last eight years. I've not changed a single job. This is my first job out of business school. Um, and a large part of that is the satisfaction, the ability to see the work through, the ability to see cycles, right? I think when you work for two years, you might just see the peak or the trough of a sine curve and you might just form mental models that you know everything is rosy or everything doesn't work but when you're at something for eight years you see the full sine curve so you become a lot more balanced you know you also know the counterfactual really well so one example is you know we started these mindspark centers in delhi um, they were doing really well they were very well subscribed um, we even got you know, high quality uh, impact evaluation, but we ran out of funding because we were 
uh, very high cost per child. And then we had to shut the centers down. And for the next two years, I was not able to raise funding to bring this to government schools. And then we finally got this, you know. So, uh, and now we're in multiple government schools. So does technology work? Does technology not work? Is it, if, is it expensive? Is it cheap? Can teachers change? Can they not? I have a far more balanced view of the world because I've seen the highs and lows of one thing. Uh, and I think that is very undervalued. You know, you, you, you get oil when you dig in one place for hundreds of feet, right? If you, if you drill in multiple locations for tens of feet, you may not get what you're looking for. Uh, so one of the things that really surprises me when I look at a lot of people who come to interview is that they have multiple two-year experiences. They have changed jobs every two years. And a lot of their worldview is based on the experience they've had. And so one advice that I normally give is stick to something for the long haul. Take time. Like it took me eight months after business school to find what I'm doing. Tell us more about that process. So, you know, I graduated from HBS with a romantic dream of helping low-income students and being a support system for them for a better education. But I didn't know the specifics. Is it through teacher training? Is it through public policy advocacy? Is it through technology? Is it through curriculum? My chase was to find the most efficient way to do this because you know efficiency, efficiency generally scales. So the equation is you know output over input, mm. uh, which is learning outcomes delivered per unit dollar spent or unit time taken. And I didn't know what the right theory of change would be to do this. Um, so I actually used my uh, you know HBS email address and wrote cold to people. I wrote to everybody that I could. Whoever replied back, I spent two days at their office by taking the train down. Now, in this journey, my only quest was to find out what works, what doesn't, and see what India is already doing. Now, this was a painful eight months, right? Because I had the HBS loan. I had a wife. Um, you know, parents are asking, what are you going to do next? Uh, but, you know, what I told myself is I'm finding what I want to do. Um, and that's what I did for eight months. I was just thinking, experiencing, being on the ground, meeting people, attending conferences, until I finally sort of found uh, a group of people, an organization, a theory of change that I resonated with. And I think it, in some ways, you know, taking that time out up front has allowed me to stick longer because I know what else is out there. Uh, and I think that's another thing that I would recommend, that people take ample time, maybe two, three, four months, to really like, you know, explore everything as much in detail as possible before picking something. The chances that your anchor is going to go deeper uh, is much higher when you have scoped out a lot of the surface on where you want to drop the anchor. It's such precious advice. Pick carefully, stick diligently. Um, uh, what have been some satisfying moments? There have been many, but like, you know, true moments that stand out in your eight-year journey with EI. And what have been some hard parts? I think the most satisfying has been uh, the direct uh, connection with the children uh, who I serve. Uh, I remember this, um, you know, when I first uh, helped a child, uh, you know, learn how to use a mouse uh, to use MindSpark. I almost felt like an electric current that sort of went through my body. 
um, when I came back uh, six months later, uh, this child was actually very proficient uh, in some advanced mathematical concepts. And I think just, you know, this may seem like one child, one story, uh, but I think it sticks with you. And I think, you know, just going back again and again to the classroom, uh, seeing what the counterfactual is, seeing like if I wasn't here, what the life of these children would be, uh, is something are, are some of the highs. Um, on the lows, I think, you know, fighting the battle on outcomes versus uh, outputs uh, is sometimes harder. I think there's so much that goes around by way of photographs and videos and, you know, people just um, saying all the right things, but ultimately the impact on outcomes uh, is sometimes undervalued, right? So if you look at the governments, they're talking about infrastructure, if you talk about uh, you know, just there's so much noise out there that uh, gets a lot of attention, gets a lot of the capital, that I think fighting the battle on learning outcomes uh, uh, has been much harder, uh, much more than I thought uh, would be necessary. But I guess, you know, some of us think about this logically, and um, I think one has to also understand there's a lot of emotion uh, that surrounds this. Uh, and I think that's been one of the things that I'm still grappling with. Right. Um, do you think the, uh, if you were to give one advice to the ed tech entrepreneurs and one advice to the government policy makers, what would it be? And I understand this is just your personal understanding of the subject, but you've been here in this industry for a while. We'd love to hear. I think for the ed tech entrepreneurs, uh, focus on the ed, you know, focus on the pedagogy, um, uh, focus on what is it that, uh, what is the research base uh, that you are building your technology on. I think so far the focus has been more on technology um, and maybe on gamification, right? So uh, does my software have enough engagement? Does it have enough bells and whistles? Does it have enough adrenaline rushing, reward points, etc.? And much, much lesser on the research base on how a child would learn fractions or how a child would learn how to read a passage. Understanding that you know, education has always been a better medicine, right? We remember that like, it was uh, challenging to learn some of the things in biology or mathematics or some of those things. Yes, there are teachers who bring joy. Yes, there are students who are naturally talented for it, but education is a better medicine. And so just recognizing that, yes, you are trying to sugarcoat with all of the bells and whistles, but deep down, what is that chemical compound that is going to guarantee children to learn? That is very undervalued, right? Um, and so I would recommend that every edtech entrepreneur spend far greater time on the pedagogy side of things and then using technology to deliver it effectively. On the government policy side, I would encourage them to consider small experiments. See, today, if you are a principal secretary of a large state, you have 40,000, 60,000. A state like Rajasthan has 80,000. A state like Madhya Pradesh has 100,000 schools. Given that the scarcest resource is the IS officer's time, uh, the tendency is to do all or nothing. So if you go, like if you don't have a solution for all 100,000 schools, they are not really interested in knowing more. But I think allowing experiments at 100 schools, at 1,000 schools to create that proof of concept, to entertain those, measure them rigorously is very important before one decides to scale. Generally, all people believe that what's the big deal in having, you know, 
teaching third grade students how to read and do basic math. It seems so trivially simple. It can't be rocket science. And I tell them, it isn't rocket science. Rocket science is much simpler. You know, we have landed a man on the moon. We have sent a mission to Mars. But we still don't have like a distilled way of ensuring that every child who enters the classroom is able to read in their mother tongue language, right? And so allowing and recognizing that far more fundamental research needs to be done, a lot more R&D, a lot more pilots, a lot more prototypes need to be done, measuring the impact of all of these on learning outcomes, and then thinking about scale is the right way to go about this. This has been such a fascinating conversation, Pranav. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, your insights will reach about 100,000 subscribers who are waiting to learn more about consulting, private equity, thinking through business school, and most importantly, finding purpose at work. So thank you for your time. We truly value it.